0: to grow as an artist is to do things that you don't know how to do <laughs> right
1: today i'm speaking with the very talented zoe lister jones zoe lister jones actress and filmmaker stars in the sitcom life in pieces band-aid the movie she stars in and made you're in a new film called beau is afraid she's in theaters nationwide writer a producer a director and an actor
0: it's nice to wear so many different hats mm-hmm. you know because they're all different muscles to yeah. flex
1: Today, we dive into the creative process behind Zoe's newest creation, Slip, the binge-worthy comedy series that involves parallel realities and alternate identities. We talk about making deeply authentic work, the responsibility she shoulders to empower other women in the arts. Zoe's a friend. She is a star very much on the rise and an artist in the absolute truest sense of the word. Before we dive in, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by On. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most mental health, sex politics, ambition, gender roles and more. Listen to the conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, let's uh let's do the thing. Well, it's so nice to see you. Thank you for doing this.
0: Thanks for having me back.
1: I was telling you before we started um, that it's been so cool just to kind of watch your career blossom over the years. Like you're just like blowing up oh, and you're in thanks. all this cool stuff. And yes. it's just, you know, it's so fun for me as somebody who knows you to kind of see you popping up all over the place. So congratulations on all of that. Thanks, it's cool. Rich. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's been, it's been a, a particularly exciting Year for sure,
1: but I feel like this year is really a tipping point for you. Thanks, there's a lot of um high prestige stuff that we're going to get into that's about to kind of pop in a big way, I think, <laughs> right? I hope so, yeah, yeah. And it feels like you've done so many things, but every new thing that you do is kind of a next evolution of like stepping into, you know, you could just be doing the same thing, but every, you're you're stretching yourself with each thing. Like you go from co-writing and co-directing or starring and then, you know, writing something that only you did and then writing and directing something that only you did. And now we have slip that's just about to come out that you wrote, directed, starred in, produced. Mm -hmm. And you're, I don't know, like in every frame (laughs) of this whole thing, right? It's wild.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, like you're the same, but I, I feel like I was a very fearful kid <laughs> growing mm. up in Brooklyn and strangely, I think I push myself towards um, things that scare me, even though it's like anathema to who <laughs> I am <laughs> at my core. I think, especially in terms of the work I do. Yeah, I, I try to to lean into to the unknown. And this is definitely the biggest foray so far because I've I've never worked in, I've never created my own television series. So Mm -hmm. I've written and directed and starred in uh, my own films, which is like also scary as hell. (laughs) Um, But to do it in this long a format Mm -hmm. where I am in in sort of every frame um, was daunting, but thrilling.
1: Did you write every episode of Slip? Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, it was. And you directed every episode. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, even you know the most talented showrunners, they'll kick it off and then they'll oversee a writers' room. Just for people that are listening or watching who don't really kind of understand how it works, um, they'll put their imprimatur on a show by creating the tone and maybe writing the first couple episodes and Mm -hmm. popping in and writing one here or there. But it's very much a collaborative effort, and this feels you know to be signature in a really unique way. And just the kind of endurance of, of, of like having your fingers into every aspect of it while also being on, being on camera. Like yeah. that's a high wire app. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I wrote the whole thing, the whole season in quarantine. Um, and uh, it was really a lifeline, but it is uh, unconventional for one person to write a whole season of television, mm-hmm. also unconventional for one person to direct it. Cause generally you have a number of directors right. throughout a season, but um, I had come off of making a studio movie and there were so many cooks in the kitchen. And I think it was really intentional that I create something that just felt wholly mine. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's such a personal story that, um, yeah, I think my writing all seven was, was a protective measure in some ways, so that I could go out and say, "This is the thing," <laughs> mm-hmm. and if you like it, then let's make it. But I, there's not really a ton of wiggle room in terms of what it is. I I I didn't want there to be compromise. And um, and astoundingly, Roku, I think probably it's a function of them being a new streaming service. Yeah they gave me a green light to series without giving me one script note, which is unheard of. Wow! So they really just allowed for me to make exactly the show that I envisioned, which, um, which was so healing mm.
1: as an artist. How does it work? Like usually in the kind of traditional conventional Hollywood sense, um, when you want to create a television show, you you kind of create the 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 book or what is it called like the the kind the of the bible m- the bible right yeah. and you write a pilot and you go through these various stages where you have to get green lights along the way and mm-hmm. all these cooks are in the kitchen approving things giving notes et cetera um, and you're lucky enough to get just a pilot greenlit yeah. but that's no guarantee of anything but now we're in a whole new World in which these streaming services are are greenlighting entire series without that kind of pilot litmus test to uh, you know kind of validate a project.
0: Yeah, you know it's an interesting time. Like uh, in some ways, I mean, television is obviously a very bold medium. It's like really exciting, and and movies are <laughs> in a much more tenuous mm-hmm. space, but. Um, there's still a lot of fear-based decision making so the fact that i was given the amount of trust i was as an artist felt pretty singular mm-hmm. as an experience it was sort of a unicorn <laughs> yeah uh, and and so and to me like any fear-based decision making in a creative venture is just death death yeah, yeah. um but when money's on the line and and that intersection of art and commerce is sort of like knocking <laughs> loudly mm-hmm. at everyone's door, it's it's challenging. Um, and it I think, yeah, there was something about this project. I was I was able to make it inexpensively, which I think also afforded me uh, more creative right. freedom, Little
1: liberation. Yeah, there.
0: and um, and I suppose because I had, um, you know, some some films under my belt. That there was uh, some, some more trust that was yeah sure of course me, but you have
1: a track record yeah um, but it's interesting you know Roka is an interesting kind of home for this um, because on the one hand all the streamers have expanded the aperture of what's possible and have created kind of a tapestry for a lot more creativity mm-hmm. and certainly a lot more you know kind of content um, but we're also in a bit of a contraction with this like the the sort of halcyon days of like throwing money around and leaving creators to do whatever they want. That's sort of played out totally. at the bigger streamers, Netflix, you know et cetera, and they're reeling everything back and laying people off. But here comes Roku, like a little sprout, you know like i 'm like <laughs> roku, like what is Roku isn't that like a box <laughs> that you have that like i don 't even know what Roku is, yeah like wait they 're making shows now, like it's confusing from a consumer point of view, like i don 't know like all these new shows come up i can't even keep track of where they are and how to find them. Um, it becomes, you know, there's there's sort of a this diaspora of all these different kind of places to find yeah. stuff, um, but you know, this is like we're in this nascent stage of of trying to you know figure out how to create a media landscape that makes sense,
0: like the early days of AMC when we were all like, what is AMC, right. you know, and it was like,
1: and they did Mad Men, Ma- And they did Mad right? Men and, and Breaking like, Bad, what? and then yeah. suddenly,
0: like, so it's it's exciting to get in. You know, early in a in a a streamer's nascent stage, because I think there is more room to do really bold filmmaking, and this is surely the boldest thing I've mm-hmm. ever made, and is you know really sex forward and and unapologetically sort of centered around female sexual pleasure, and so um, yeah, I'm like big ups to Roku for
1: yeah, <laughs> for taking I mean, it's the definitely- <laughs> Uh, it, it's definitely pushing you know pushing the envelope and mm-hmm. you know and it's 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 kind of NSFW in, in in certain respects um but very bold and honest in that regard and yet at the same time highly relatable so maybe explain like you know before we go any further <laughs> yeah. like let's talk about what it actually is so people um, understand what we're talking about
0: Sure Slip uh, follows a woman named Mae Cannon played by Yours Truly Uh, And she, when we meet her, she's restless in her marriage and ends up cheating on her husband one night and wakes up the next morning Mm. uh, to discover that she's now married to the dude she cheated on her husband with. And then over the course of the season, learns that um, through orgasm, she's being transported into a multiverse. Um, And so each episode, um, she's sort of being launched, (laughs) <laughs> sexually mm-hmm. into all of her parallel lives and relationships.
1: Right, so it has this weird kind of everything everywhere all at once multiverse aspect of yeah. it, aspect to it that's that's kind of, you know, sci-fi or or, you know, kind of fantasy oriented. Um, and yet at the same time, it feels very wedded to the work that you've always been doing, all the way back to like breaking upwards, mm-hmm. and like when was that, like two thousand eight, nine, or yeah, something like that, like your first movie with Daryl, that is really grappling with um, what it means to be in a relationship and and find happiness and 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 freedom within the mm-hmm. construct of of monogamy, um, and and you know this being slip being written like during the pandemic. Um, where we're all kind of stuck at home with our partners or whatever and we're questioning our lives. Yeah. There's something very universal that transcends just you know relationships uh, that speaks to you know this idea of, of questioning our lives and could it be better in kind of a sliding door sort of way? Like, well, if you know we all have that experience where we meet somebody, and there's a spark and you know regardless of your station in life you're 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 immediately like sort of future tripping and yeah. like playing house in you know in <laughs> so. a, in a, in a in a kind of fantasy you know idealized way of what it would be like if i was with that person mm-hmm. and you're just playing that out all the way to the end yes to kind of experience like oh well if i actually did that what would that be like and how does that then make me uh you sort of consider in a revisionist history way, um you know, how I've been feeling about, you know, my life as it is in reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean I've always been a avid future tripper. Uh. <laughs> um, and 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 I think it was exciting for me to sort of narrativize like what the what those fantasies would look like, as you said, if they were actually played out because oftentimes the fantasy will never be. Right, um, you know. You quickly we'll ne- find out like,
1: y- yeah. this is nothing like. <laughs> the
0: reality <laughs> will will yeah. always disappoint you. Uh-huh. Um, but I do think like as universal as those sort of existential questions are around like, could I be happier, you know? Mm-hmm. And what do I do with that feeling of wanting more that and the what ifs and, and the paths not chosen? all of those questions just became so loud in quarantine. Um, as you said, like, regardless of your station, if you were stuck in a relationship or if you were feeling so isolated and alone. Um, and and so I think this really was my way of, I guess, trying to answer those questions for myself as I was also... Um, you know, ending a, a very substantial relationship and marriage, so mm-hmm. it was mirroring some of my sure. my personal life, and I think so much of my work, as you said, has been about the the nuances and complexities of of relationship dynamics, and so this was also uh, very much about that. But I wanted to do it through a more fantastical lens, and and um, give myself an opportunity, and also an, the audience an opportunity to to go on a sort of wild adventure <laughs>
1: right yeah 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 relationships through the matrix yeah uh,
2: exactly some level, you know
1: and it's really fun but it's also like yeah it's like you're there's there's a very kind of strong female empowerment component of of being vulnerable but not shying away from uh really confronting sexuality head-on like mm. you're not hiding from any of that like it's Front and center mm. throughout the whole thing, which is like a really bold choice, right? And to say that, like, Roku was like, cool, go for it, like, that speaks to, you know, some level of like confidence in you as a, as a, as a, you know, creative force.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm so grateful um, to have been given that much room to explore female sexuality. I think, um, you know, I was raised by, <laughs> by an amazing uh, woman, Ardell Lister, an artist in her own right, um, who, who really taught me to look at media through um, uh, like a, cr- a critical lens, especially when it came to the way that women were represented. Um, and so this was an exciting opportunity for me to sort of subvert the lens that we have come to just n- know mm-hmm. um, w- in the way that, that so many I guess, um, yeah, that female sexuality in particular has been portrayed in media, which is oftentimes voyeuristic um, in nature, even though we're not even aware mm-hmm. of it, but that that sort of male gaze that- Yeah, that
1: salacious is, through a male point of view.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and the objectification of, of, of those women in those scenes. I think this was such an exciting opportunity um, to make something that was erotic, like I, I really wanted mm-hmm. to make something that was gonna turn people on, um, but that was also messy and unapologetic and and that created sex scenes that were the centerpiece of every episode, but that were very much from a woman's perspective um, and very much like, um, yeah, I guess pushing the boundaries of how much sex we are allowed to see. It, it's a, it's a such such a strange thing, I think, especially in media, like the dichotomy between like puritanism and and salaciousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were always riding that line. And I think um, female pleasure has always been sort of at the crux of that, right? Cause we don't really wanna get into it. Right. <laughs> we kind of just want them to be, um, you know, ob- objects of, of lust and desire rather than agents of it.
1: Yeah. But the device that you use, which is, simultaneously kind of hilarious and and provocative is this notion that like orgasm is this wormhole through <laughs> which you travel through time and enter into parallel universes where you have sex with somebody and then suddenly you're you're this is your life like yeah. that has always been your life with this person and then you have to live with that and that makes you kind of reflect on like is this better like this fantasy that i had and now i'm in it is this better than what i had before
0: yeah that like grass is always greener yeah. paradigm where you then get to the other grass and you're like, ah, oh, this one sucks too. <laughs>
1: <You know? laughs> now yeah. what? Um, but like, to be fair, is it your, I, I wasn't clear, is it your boyfriend or your husband? husband. You, your husband, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he's Dorkville, like all the way, <laughs> right? Like you're clearly <laughs> unhappy with this guy and unsatisfied, but there's something stable about it and yeah. you know.
0: I mean, yeah, in the show, um, I I. Yes, the the relationship has come to a standstill for Uh sure. I mean, there's only so much you can do in half an hour, so I I didn't want it to be so black and white that uh, (laughs) you know that you're like (laughs) get out of there, because I think there is like this sort of comfort, the creature comforts Mm -hmm. of a long term relationship or any relationship really, you know, um, have a lot of value, and that idea of home is. Mm -hmm so central to mm-hmm. like finding stability in one's life. And and I think because my character is, comes from a foster upbringing home in general is like a pretty tenuous thing for her. And so the, over the course of the season, I think she's, she's um, yeah, sort of pondering the decisions she's made and wondering if she should go back maybe less about the person that she left and more about that sense of of stability and home mm-hmm. and and what that means and how we can find that internally rather than in other people
1: mm-hmm. but this notion of always searching for more or trying to find a way to fill that like hole that can only be filled through some sort of spiritual solution that transcends the material is is played out in many ways you know, throughout the show and I'm only at the inception of the show. But I love the fact that like, you know, she's a curator at this museum and there's this exhibit and it's called the Hungry Ghosts. Like obviously, you know, it's very intentional. (laughs) Like, you know, I've read Gabor Mate's book, you know, the the realm of the Hungry Ghosts and like, that idea of like, we're just, you know, we're, we're craven in certain ways and we're always looking for more and we're trying to like make ourselves feel whole through what we can grab onto in the material world. And no matter what that thing is that we grab onto, it doesn't quite get us there and we're deluded into the sense that like, it just, it lives just a little bit outside of ourselves and it's gonna be the next thing and the next thing. And that gets played out through sexuality in the narrative, um, you know, of of Slip. Uh, But, you know, how does that like, like do you come to some resolution with that? (laughs) And like, how is this playing out, you know, for yourself? Because obviously these are questions that you're grappling with in your own in your own life,
0: yeah, I think the hungry ghost is a fascinating archetype because I've never struggled with substance abuse, but I think we all are addicts. You mm-hmm. know, and like you're saying, that there's always this um, sort of insatiable quest for something to fill that restlessness or or um, you know, vacuous place in right. our souls. Yes. Um when
1: you finally win that Academy Award or when you yeah. get that, you know, external validation that you've been working towards your whole life, then you will feel complete.
0: And you will never feel complete. Mm. And, and I think that's, you know, such a, it's such a universal trope and trait that we're all constantly facing. Um, and so I did kind of wanna look at addiction through that lens where whether it's love or sex addiction or something even sort of more ephemeral than that just that hunger that lives in all of us and how we how we each choose to um to try to satiate it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know however misguided the attempts are and i mean i so admire all of your spiritual practices i don't have um enough of a steady spiritual practice but i but i was raised in a very spiritual home, and I guess at my core, like it is something that I return to um, when I'm really in need, but um, I totally struggle with it. I, I think that um, <laughs> i don't I don't identify as a love addict, but I'm very interested in in love addiction <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because I think we all are sort of you know craving. That connection in a way that will never be fulfilled, you know, in in the way that love has been um, designed. To, <laughs> the idea, this sure, idea the of love, yeah, the narrative exactly. of love has been designed yeah, yeah. to totally right. deceive us, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, I think, it's especially not to make it so gendered, but especially I think for women, um, what we're Seeking in in romantic relationships uh, will always be just slightly off the mark um, and I think that has been fed to us culturally, but um, I think this show does really delve into things that I definitely struggle with personally around intimacy and and sex and and um and that sort of addiction to wanting more
1: sure um. Well, let's go back there. I mean, you mentioned your mom. Your mom is a central figure in your life yeah. if you follow <laughs> Zoe on Instagram. Uh, you know, the 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 affection uh that you have for your mom is is, you know, is 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 really touching. You know, she's obviously had like a big impact on your life. Your dad was an artist too. Yeah. You grew up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Two crazy artists. Yeah. We're both kind of, you know, your dad was a photographer, like they're in media, they're challenging narratives, I'm mm-hmm. sure. And you're growing up in, in an environment um, that is, uh, I, would, I would suppose on some level, slightly, if not, you know, altogether transgressive.
2: Yes. <laughs> and you're, you know,
1: shaving your head and, you know, being like, I, were you a goth kid? Like what's going on?
0: I shaved my head when I was 11. Uh-huh. I wasn't Eleven. goth. Yeah. wow. Yeah. Um, I was really into ska. Uh Uh,
1: (laughs) Uh, Who were the bands?
0: I loved the specials, The Selector, Uh, Madness. Uh Um, But yeah, I guess- No, no, I didn't- That was West Coast. Yeah, I didn't get into like West Coast. I was sort of a a purist in terms of that British uh, scene, but um, I was definitely raised in a transgressive Household almost so transgressive that like the only way for me to rebel was to be conservative. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, to
2: be my, an investment yeah, banker. Yeah.
0: My mom took me to to get my head shaved. It wasn't me like. Rebelling. Oh wow! Like <laughs> that's a trip. <laughs> she, it was my idea. <laughs> oh my god! But um,
2: uh-huh. but
0: yeah, I, I think I was. I think it was at a time for me when I was getting a lot of. Male attention from older men, and I think unconsciously, this is only in retrospect that Mm. I that I think I shaved it in order to as an attempt at some sort of invisibility. Mm. Um, It it did the opposite; Uh, it it got me so much attention and bullying, and you know, I was it was really a tough couple years when I um, was playing with sort of gender expression and androgyny in that way. and, uh, but yeah, my parents are both really cool, prolific artists. My mom's a video artist and and they both made very personal work. So I think from a young age, I had these really amazing examples of um, of what it looks like to fuse
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, those two worlds. I don't, I really don't know any other way. I, I've never made anything that is not pretty deeply personal yeah. um, at its core. But, uh, but yeah, and, and they've just been so supportive of me throughout my, my life and, and pushed me to go further. And, and they exposed me to so much transgressive shit <laughs> as a young yeah. person, which, you know, at that age, you're like, ah, I, I don't know if I'm ready for this. <laughs> but um, but it, it had such an impact on, on me as an artist.
1: So we think of Brooklyn now as this, you know, gentrified, you know, kind of uh, hipster village. But <laughs> you know, when you were growing up, that that predated kind of that wave, right? Yeah. So the experience of being a kid in Brooklyn and having these artists as parents, yeah, there's no way that you know you don't you don't emerge from that with a, a very unique kind of worldview.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Brooklyn in the '80s, it, the neighborhood that. That I was raised in was, um, it was definitely tough. We were robbed a lot. It was like I, I think my nervous system is mm. <laughs> um, broken. <laughs> uh, there's no repairing it. Um, and, and, and also, you know, but then I was a part of the, the sort of New York art world mm-hmm. because of my parents, and I was an only child, so I was being dragged to openings and events and performance art pieces. And so. Um, right,
1: is this like abandoned building, you know, kind yeah. of weird, you know, like edgy.
0: Totally, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember like um, my mom taking me, this was as a maybe like 12 to this screening of this Japanese cult film that was like really fucked up. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> really uh-huh.
0: fucked up, and but she's such a culture vulture, you know, and mm-hmm. she's so curious. Um, and I was, you know, she didn't have a babysitter, so so I was exposed, yeah, to to just wild shit. That um, and her work too was really wild and transgressive, and and um, so it's cool to to see, yeah the impact of both my parents' work on my own. It's
1: interesting, like we're, you know, as a parent, um, the whole kind of conventional notion around protecting your kids from anything, you know, that might Traumatize them, like not taking them to you know a certain kind of movie too soon. But all the interesting people that I know that are doing interesting things in the world were the people who were going to those movies way too early. <laughs> yeah, you know, so totally. I I have a whole different view on that. Oh, yeah,
0: <laughs> I think I saw Do the Right Thing in the theater
1: when it came out. I think I was like
0: you know, five or something. <laughs> like right. a lot. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a lot.
1: Um, yeah. But but what's wild about you is you kind of come out of that like nitty gritty you know art uh, world, um, but and and you know and you've done a lot of stuff in that independent DIY context, uh, but you're very much you've segued and moved into you know this 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 sort of very you know you've you've been embraced by you know the the traditional Hollywood system. And you've kind of stepped into being, you know a glamorous exemplar of that, right? Like you <laughs> Thanks, really Rich. lean into the glamor. Like I it's, do. you do, yeah. I mean like how many photo shoots a week do you do? It's insane, right?
0: <laughs> well, no, right now with press, there's a <laughs> yeah. lot. It's like, uh, yeah, my Instagram is a little bit insufferable right. but um, I do love, listen, yeah. I'm, I'm a real, but the choices that you make <laughs> as a
1: creative are are like feel very true to you know the ethos of of how you were brought up, nonetheless.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I I grew up broke. My parents were broke, and they could never make a living from their art. And I think I really like bore witness to the heartache of that life. And it made me not want to be an artist. I was like pretty adamantly like a capitalist. (laughs) Like like, my parents were both like you know like I was like I remember someone asking me in uh, in high school like what do you what's like your main what do you want from life and I was like money and they were like you you disgust me (laughs) but I was like Mm. I was like I want stability like I don't want the life that life that I saw because it wasn't just being broke. It was, um, it was- Feeling unsafe and- Well, that, but also like the emotional component of seeing two incredible artists um, sort of have to um, abandon those, those dreams. That's a really painful thing for a kid to witness, you know, really porous and sensitive kid mm-hmm. to witness um, that both of them had to get, my dad had a lot of odd jobs. He was a t- telemarketer, he worked at different magazines, he worked at a video game company. He was just trying to scrape to get by. My mom um, started teaching video art at Rutgers. Um, and I think neither of them ever were able to to really put the focus on their art again. And the um you know, it, it's that that sort of age-old question of like, if no one sees your art, <laughs> what what, is that, what impact does that have on you as an artist? And both of them, you know, my mom is in, in, is in museum collections and stuff, but could never make a living and And I think it's paralyzing, and mm. I saw how paralyzing it was. I saw how painful it was. And when I got a scholarship to go to Tish for acting, I was like, no, <laughs> like mm. to put all my eggs in that basket. And my mom was the one to be like, no, you should, you should go. Mm. Um, and I
1: did. Had you been acting in high school building yeah. up to that? Like yeah. how did that even happen to begin with?
0: I had acted in a couple high school productions. Um, I was really shy, but by the end of like, by my senior year, I, I was acting, I, more mm-hmm. in high school, and then I auditioned and um and got in and got this um scholarship and so I think also because you know there was a financial component. My mom was like, "You're going mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and
1: so the financial component was almost equally as important <laughs> as the idea <laughs> of like you know becoming an actress was secondary to uh, that,
0: yeah. I think my mom also saw that I had love for that and didn't want me at such a young age to be so cynical. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I think, and I really am grateful for her um, because she's a deeply cynical person, but but she was trying to save me from that. Um, And then like miraculously in, one of the tough toughest industries it's I was able to make a living yeah. from from my art, and so that's all a long way of saying I started to work in TV before TV was cool. <laughs> you know, like I was doing sitcoms, uh-huh. and um, and it was not cool. It was not like something that I was necessarily super proud of in terms of um, you know my street cred. But to be able to make a living, like I was just like, mm. this is the coolest thing in the world. Like, I, this is beyond my wildest dreams, and I'm still just so grateful to have been given those opportunities and and to be able to own a home. You know, like yeah. my my parents never owned a home. Yeah, my yeah, dad yeah. still has never owned a home. Like, um, mm. so I, I think I, I've always had a really pragmatic approach to the industry. <laughs>
1: with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Yeah, you seem to kind of move back and forth between these worlds. I mean, like we mentioned, you did Breaking Upwards. Did that go to Sundance? I mean, that really put you on the map. That was the first thing that you and Daryl did together.
0: Yeah. premiered at South by Southwest. Uh And that was our first, we made, my ex-husband and I, Daryl made uh, it for $15,000. So it was a real Mm -hmm. labor of love and teensy weensy. And and then it opened all these doors for both of us uh, as a team. So we were really then billed as a- But
1: not like a financial windfall. (laughs) No, God, no. But in terms of that, like street cred, right? Like indie filmmaker, cool challenging monogamy, this is a recurrent theme through all the stuff that you do all the way through slip. Um, but then, yeah, like doing all this TV stuff, like you've done, <laughs> like it's a rite of passage for a young New York actor to do Law & Order, but you did like <laughs> <All> Law <and> & <laughs> Order to the 10th degree. Like you did every iteration of Law & Order, like I'm obsessed with Law & Order. Really? I've seen like every episode. We, like, I didn't I know lo- that about yeah, you. Like, <laughs> It's like a narcoleptic for me. Like, I don't know why, but like, for some reason, like when I can't sleep, like an episode of Law & Order. or like like, Yeah, it just like, you know, it's despite the fact that it's about crime and people doing awful things, it like (laughs) lulls me into some kind of calm. I don't know what that's, what that says about me. Um, So I've seen you in many different, you know, versions of Law & Like Criminal Intent, the SUV. Mm. It's like, it's always funny when you go back and you watch the really old ones because there's so many amazing actors doing incredible things that you see in these small parts in Law & Order. This is kind of like a training ground. I don't know if it's still the case, like they've kind of rebooted it more recently. Um, But I'm always amused when you see an actor show up in Law & Order and then like they show up again playing a totally different character. Like they don't care about that. They
0: don't care. Yeah, I think I did four in the span of like a year and a half, right.
1: two years, playing There's different people entirely. Yeah, different and people. they just ignore the fact that you were. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, yeah, Showed up last year, <laughs> as somebody else. Yeah. Well,
0: it was a, each one was a different, uh-huh. you know, franchise. I was on Mothership, SVU, Criminal Intent, right. and then a, a short-lived Trial by Jury. But um, uh, yeah, no, that's a total rite of passage, and that was uh, it it is really like sort of boot camp because you mm. you do have to embody these yeah. wildly different characters. And I remember auditioning for Law and Order and in the waiting room, there was like, back in the days of VHS tapes, but like there was like a shelf of VHS tapes of every audition and it was like Brad Pitt. Like, you know, it was everyone, right. it was everyone like, uh and so you were seated in this waiting room being like, yes, one day.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> I too. Like you kind of have to do it if you're you a have young to, actor yeah. in New York, right?
0: Yeah, and I was doing a lot of theater at that time too, which was really fun and, and um. And also, you know, an incredible training ground as an actor. Mm -hmm. But I think that like indie film and guerrilla filmmaking for me was, it it did allow, like, I I was able to afford to do those things because I was on television. Sure. I think because I was bridging those two worlds, you know, that allowed for some street cred while I was Mm -hmm. on (laughs) network sitcoms. and, And then also the sitcoms allowed for me to go, you know, Make right. some really tiny things that that cost nothing and made nothing.
1: Right, but a lot of people don't do that. I mean, you end up in New Girl, like I was telling you before the podcast. Like my daughter Mathis is obsessed with New Girl. Like that's all she, you know, you you know Mathis. Like that's all she cares about. Like there's a certain <laughs> yeah. generation, like for you know for whom like that's the most important thing in the way that the Office, like yeah. You know, lives in a certain headspace for yeah. a lot of people. Um, and in that sitcom world, like you could make an incredible living. You're paying totally. your bills and you're able to create that financial stability that obviously was important to you. Um, but it's very few people who then kind of branch out in the off season or in the, you know, kind of the respite in between seasons to go do their own thing. And, um, you know the fact that like you sort of have seized those opportunities with Daryl and now without Daryl to like really make sure that you're making the most of that mm-hmm. to build your career to me reads like somebody who's incredibly ambitious and and uh and and perhaps like creatively restless like mm. you do those shows, you get paid really well, it's great um but are you really igniting your creative spark unless you're writing your own stuff and like exploring your own kind of interior emotional landscape as an artist in these other new and unique ways and and trying to you know kind of um, create a career path through that over time?
0: Yeah, you know, people get so easily pigeonholed um, in in my industry and and put into boxes, and so I think there was a a ferocity to me trying to not be able to be put into one category too but yeah i think i don't know any other way to live like mm. i i don't know what to do with it's not just a restlessness of spirit but it's like a a hunger to answer questions for myself that are um sort of at the core mm-hmm. of you know the human journey for me like Anything that's coming up, I'm a deeply sensitive and feeling person, so I'm always wrestling with with you know sort of deep and existential queries that I, I kind of only know how to answer through my my
1: writing. Hmm. Yeah, you made this independent movie, Consumed, about GMOs and mm-hmm. farming and soil, and that's around the time that we met for the first time. Yeah. But then during the pandemic, you make um, this "How It Ends" movie. You know, like (laughs) like what can we do when we're all locked down, right? And then you write "Slip" during the pandemic as well, like Mm -hmm. using the confusion and the isolation and you know, kind of all the weird emotions that we were all having, and channeling that into you know something that you could express.
0: Yeah, yeah. How It Ends was also both Daryl and I trying to figure out how to face like, God, something unprecedented that we were all, we were all just, mm-hmm. you know, sitting around having to face ourselves, you know, and I guess yeah. that's the most unprecedented part. Um, and so that was the story of of um, my character walking across Los Angeles on the last Anne Earth with her younger self and having a conversation with her younger self because I, was trying to do so much inner child work at the time. And I did not know how to talk to my younger self. I still don't really know, but the movie was me trying to figure it out um, by actually writing a script (laughs) between the two of
1: us. (laughs) Well, what does that look like? Like we were joking uh, again before the podcast, I texted uh, Whitney Cummings. You were in her. You you were in her show, Whitney. You mm-hmm. know Whitney. You know better than I do. But I was like, Whitney, Zoe's coming in. What what should we talk about? And it's like all about trauma and her child. You know, like she wants to go right to the psychology of everything. <laughs> <Classic> <laughs> right, Whitney. Yeah. I know. Um, so that inner child work, or even like kind of uh, not just childhood trauma, but like. The adult trauma mm-hmm. of like experiencing COVID and exploring that through art.:
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've all got just children wailing inside of sure. us. <laughs> oh my God. And I guess that you know that I, I think those children are probably in a weird way, holding the reins of our hungry ghosts. Yeah. Um, but I think we all can be sort of hijacked by... Very young people, and um, and I've only in the last few years, I think, really, COVID sparked uh, a much stronger or acute interest in in who that person is and how to talk to her and how to settle her down. Um, And you know, I was going through some major life changes, and I still am, and and I think at at any threshold in a person's life those voices get all the louder mm-hmm. and and um, and yeah that process of like reparenting is is I still I don't totally understand it but I'm trying to But you
1: do you like what is your modality for that You have a therapist. I'm in a lot of therapy. Uh,
0: (laughs) I have an individual therapist. Uh, I'm also in group therapy, which is mm -hmm. one of my favorite new modalities. I think it's really radical um, and cool work. Um,
1: And in that group, are they friends or strangers?
0: No, strangers and we can't mm -hmm. speak outside of group. Um, And uh, it's an amazing exercise in radical honesty. It's basically a place, it's like a safe space in which one can say anything um, and say it directly to another person. So it's like an in individual therapy, which I also love, but it's a, it's a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. This is really testing the bounds of your interpersonal <laughs> dynamics as a mirror to reflect what's happening outside of group therapy for you. Um, and I, yeah, so that's been really fascinating. Um,
1: that's a level, like an, an enhanced level of trust that you have to muster um, also because with the therapist, they're sort of bound by law, but then you have these other people, if they're strangers, you don't even know these people and you're a public person.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting element to it um, that people are pretty cool about, but you know, they have access to information about me that I don't have mm. about them, um, but but that really rarely comes up. I mean, I think um, for me, like what it's what it's also meant to do is um, sort of replay family d- dynamics. So within those family dynamics, like the group leader is you know the matriarch or patriarch, and and then you've got how how where you fit in 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 a given family, and um, I spent like the, the first four sessions just weeping, mm. and I was so confused by it. I, I called the group therapist after and was like, "What is happening?" But there's also such a, like a raw humanity that is experienced because no, it's not like you're you're taking turns talking. Um, you have to find your way in. To a conversation with eleven people. So if you want to like talk about something or relate to somebody or say I have something that I, you know is really eating away at me and I need your help, like finding just finding your voice is like such a huge hurdle. And for me as an only child, like I've never had to really do that. Mm. Um, I mean, I have to do it in my in my professional life, but um, yeah. So it's been it's just been so interesting. And then people will tell their stories and. There's so much universality to them um, that, yeah. So that that's been cool. Um, and and uh, and personal therapy. There was a time when I was in couples therapy, individual therapy, and group therapy every week. So like, <laughs> I was uh-huh. so out of my mind. Right. Um, it was helpful, but I, now I'm only in two two of the three mm. every week. <laughs> It's a lot, man. It's, it's a lot. A lot. Yeah. I'm a firm believer in therapy though.
1: Yeah. But this question around monogamy seems to be this thing that has kind of lived, you know, in your in your, you know, conscious and unconscious mind for a very long time from mm-hmm. the inception of your beautiful relationship with Daryl that like, you know, went on for a long time and kind of, you know, reached its you know, conclusion. Um, and I love Daryl, you know that. Yeah. Um, and I know you guys are still close and all of that, but the fact that this was, you know, part and parcel of, of your mov- your first movie that you guys did together and still gets played out and slip, yeah. like what is going on with like how, <laughs> there's something like very cool about the, the female empowerment piece to that but I feel like you're still trying to make sense of, of like what that means and, and how you live as a modern woman, a modern empowered woman mm-hmm. um, within the, the kind of construct of you know conventional lifestyle and yeah. expectations.
0: Yeah, I mean, Breaking Upwards, as you said, was about non-monogamy. It was, it was um, based on a real open relationship that Daryl and I were in and, and Daryl and I, over the course of our 17 year relationship, um we're in and out of mm-hmm. of non-monogamy and i think in some ways slip was me trying to contend with with what that was and what that meant and how to take it into this new stage of my life like we became polyamorous um in the later stage of of our relationship and that you know opens up a whole new Does that new ever
1: work? Do you know anyone who's explored (laughs) that? Like we have, you know, this fantasy that, you know we can live these polyamorous lives, but I don't know anyone who's been able to like do that and achieve a level of happiness beyond what they were experiencing prior or to do it in any successful way. And I'm friends with Neil Strauss. He wrote a whole book about it called The Truth. Like, you know, read that book and you'll, you know you'll get a heavy dose of, you know what the reality of that looks like.
0: Yeah, I mean, my mom's best friends are polyamorous um and they have been for decades and they sort of served as me and Daryl's mentors. They have made it work um but you know, like whenever I would go meet with either one of them to be like, "Oh, what do I do? <laughs> like this is crazy." They would tell me stories that were so harrowing. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, like, like the fantasy of, of like sexual liberation, <laughs> yeah. you know, has to contend with, you know, all of our human frailty and jealousy and and pettiness. Uh, you know, I, I just don't know that I would. I, I I mean, I'm not cut out for that.
0: Yeah, and there's a level of, at least in my experience, you know, because I think it. Some people do make it work. I definitely think non-monogamy can work. I think that's a very different thing than polyamory. Um, and I think in some ways I, I question how much social conditioning plays into the difficulties that we assign to non-monogamy because monogamy is also really fucking hard. Sure. You know, we just don't see it. It doesn't have the same um, stigma, yeah.
1: um, but. It doesn't have the level of complexity though. It might have a high degree of difficulty,
0: right? That's true.
1: <laughs> but you know, it's not a, the 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 difficulty doesn't live on that exponential scale of like you know having to manage all different kinds of people, and it just seems yeah. very chaotic.
0: It is. It was chaotic. I guess, like any extreme sport, <laughs>
1: mm.
0: there's hot, really you're chasing the adrenaline, you know. Um, and then your body's broken and you have to recover for a
1: and while. is the adrenaline about like like the new cuz there's always like the allure of the new Yes, you know that's the uncharted terrain where the answer lives in this exciting you know uncharted you know like uh you know adventure with this new person and the promise that that holds
0: i think it's the allure of the new i think there is something uh exciting and sexy about the transgressive nature of what you're doing, radical honesty, if you can swing that. Mm -hmm. But I think the complexity really, for me at least lies. I think for a lot of people, it's like the new is hot and also the illicit is hot. And the whole point of non-monogamy when done well is that it is all about communication and honesty. But you know, there's going to be omissions, there's going to you're still gonna be chasing something illicit on some level and 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 that's I think where people mm-hmm. get stuck.
1: Yeah. Well it's a very kind of heightened peak experience, I would imagine. Yeah. And when when it's when it's like working well, it probably feels like being really high. Yes, um, but I would imagine the lows are pretty low too. Real low, really low. <laughs> so where do you land on that now? After like we don't have to get into the details of that adventure, but yeah. as somebody who's explored that, like, what is your kind of you know uh, summation on 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 living uh, that, that, that lifestyle? I think that I would
0: not be polyamorous ever again, um, and I think. I'm still, jury's out on non-monogamy. I think it's something that really scares me. Um, I still am not like, but it scares me, but I'm always sort of game, Mm -hmm. (laughs) do you know what I mean? Um, Like most things in my life that scare me. Um, For me, I think many people play with don't ask, don't tell in non-monogamous relationships and that doesn't work for me. it's a tell tell situation <laughs> mm-hmm. because I think, yeah. I think just based on on my personal experience, honesty is has to be at the forefront yeah. of any relationship. And
1: with all the therapy that you've done and that you're doing, how do you know, like when you're, you know, pursuing a relationship or an experience um, from a healthy place versus acting out on some you know uh you know perpetuating you know some past trauma totally. or acting out for attention or what have you
0: Totally Yeah I don't know how you know those yeah. things I mean I think I think you know deep down when you're acting from a from the hungry ghost place you know like I mm-hmm. I will say to my therapist what is
1: the need that you're trying to yeah, meet
0: Yeah what and and I can I can feel. I'm like this. Feels addicty, you know. Like you can tell the difference of. I think the difference is really um, a center of gravity. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're experiencing something from a place of groundedness versus a place um, in which you, your feet are far off the ground.
1: And from that hungry ghost perspective, can you be okay? just with yourself and not in pursuit of those experiences with others. And coming out of a a marriage, a long time relationship and all the peaks and valleys, you know, with Daryl, like where does that land you in terms of how you feel about yourself and how you engage with other people in relationship?
0: You know, it's interesting coming out of something that was really, Half my life and all of my adult life, it's a difficult thing to distinguish what you're projecting onto a new relationship versus mm-hmm. what that relationship is actually sure. bringing to the table. So I guess that's been um, my biggest question. But um, definitely getting you know post post separation and also post COVID. You know, which was like wasn't even post COVID, but it was like when the world began to open up. You know. Everyone, regardless mm-hmm. of what they had just come out of, was like so desperate for human connection um, and sexual connection and all of those things that um, the moment was ripe. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. uh, and I did have to face a lot of those questions of what's driving this need and and is this healthy and and I think for women especially, those questions are all the more complicated. Um, sure, because I think. You know, historically and societally, there's so much shame around um around sex and desire um and what it looks like to be unapologetically lustful mm-hmm. as right. a woman, uh which I think the show really yeah the deals show with. definitely explores that yeah yeah
1: yeah, 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 well, I mean that's another you know huge theme in 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 the work that you do um and and kind of um, carry into how you create your projects um, from a professional perspective. I mean, in Band-Aid, which was really kind of your coming out party in terms of of, of doing something on your own, mm-hmm. like outside of your, your creative collaboration with Daryl to write and direct your first independent movie. And you got a lot of attention Uh, for the fact that you hired an all-female crew, which Mm -hmm. I don't, had anybody ever done that before? At least at that scale? I don't
0: think so, not at that scale, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So talk a little bit about like your decision to do that, the challenges in actually executing on that and kind of the ripple effect of having done that.
0: I think, um, well, as I said, my mother had had a great influence on me um, growing up and um, and really put my tension towards inequity, particularly gender inequity and particularly in media. And mm-hmm. so um, I think when I was given the opportunity to be in charge of my own hiring practices, I wanted to take a really big swing. And as an actor, I had witnessed, I had witnessed that inequity firsthand, I mean, crews, to this day, still, regardless of the amount of, you know, lip service paid to um, how much is changing in our industry, they are really white and really male. And um,
1: yeah, I mean, female directors, like, I don't think it's changed that much.
0: Yeah, like directors, decades. I feel like there there has been a shift, and I'm grateful for it. And I think that that goes for you know, um, for you know, the BIPOC community too, like there is more of a drive for um inclusivity above the line meaning with directors and screenwriters and whose stories can be told and that's great but th- there's a 100 person team mm-hmm. below those people mm-hmm. and it's there that it's still really homogenized and um and so i i wanted to See what I could do to just really like shake up the system, because I think if you don't draw a hard line in the sand, you will just c- continue the pattern because it, it's it's mostly about you know people are very unwilling to take risks on those with less experience and those with less experience don't have an opportunity to get more experience mm-hmm. <laughs> because no one will take the risk on them, and so it's this
2: yeah, you know and there's a lot of money catch twenty two and
0: there's a lot of money, and the stakes are high and So that experience was um, incredible, like truly incredible to have all women uh, surrounding me on that project, especially because it was my first time directing and Mm -hmm. I was also acting and and writing. And it was a we shot Band Aid in 12 days, which was only 12 days. Yeah. I didn't
1: know it was that short. We had so little money.
0: Crazy. And, 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 the fear that I found in my department heads who were also women in, in breaking their own patterns. Cause they're like, I don't know, but, but my second is a dude I've worked with for 12 years. Like you right. gotta let me work with him. We have a shared language, he, you know, he's gonna. And I was just like, I'm so sorry, but you, can, mm. you can't. And in the end, I think everyone was um, really grateful that they had been pushed beyond their comfort zones. Um, not and, and not from a, the perspective of of, of you know making some sort of socio political stance, but d- because of the process, the the process was really revelatory and. Um, and I remember like, the day after we wrapped, my uh, assistant director went on to a new project and was the only woman, on the project, and we were sort of living in this utopia. Um, and, and so I think that the fall from grace was really mm. difficult. Um, it's changing incrementally. I do think it's changing incre- incrementally, but it, it requires intentionality and, um, and a willingness to take risks, which I hate calling them, but, but it is what, what, what one would view as a risk in hiring someone that might have less experience than, um, Than their white male counterpart. Yeah,
1: and also a risk given that this was really your first time (laughs) directing, right? Like, there's a lot on the line for you career wise in terms of, you know, what's gonna happen next. Yeah. So, for you to say, it's one thing, like, oh, I've been doing this for a long time. Like, now I'm gonna, I'm finally gonna do this. I have cred and all of that. But, like, you were, you know, just at the beginning of trying to establish cred in that world. And for you to say, no, I'm gonna do this is pretty bold, right? And yeah, and then to have your department heads you know, have to do that because then you're in a conversation around like values versus like the quality of the film. Yes. Like the quality of the film is gonna suffer because the communication between the department heads and the people underneath them, isn't gonna be functional, that's gonna affect you. And it's great that you hired all these women, but if the movie sucks, you're not gonna get another chance to do this, right? Yeah. And the whole project, you know, kind of collapses on top of itself.
0: Yeah, and that's what stops progress from happening, you know, because I think that's like any sort of archaic institution that we're trying to poke holes in right now is the idea that, but this works, but this is what we know, Mm. we can't change it because that everything's gonna fall apart. And it's like, when you change it, actually the opportunities for greatness are so much bigger. and and it was amazing to um, sort of have empirical proof of that. Mm-hmm. And I, again, like,
1: but there is a ballsiness for you being still a newcomer for sure. to do that, as opposed to an established, you know, uh, credible director with a track record of generating box office. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, so yeah. that's pretty fucking cool.
0: It, it thank and you
1: ballsy and courageous.
0: <laughs> it was cool. I mean, I again like. You know, with Slip, like there's no reason anyone should have trusted me to direct every single episode, you know? right? Like that's a crazy thing for me to say, I'm gonna do this on my first series that I've created. It's it's a risk, like I'd never, I directed a pilot.
2: Mm
0: It didn't go to series. I had a track record, but I do think you kind of have to, it requires a huge amount of like humility and confidence. Where does that confidence?
1: Where does that? Where does that confidence come from? Is that uh, your mom? Like yeah.
0: Well, yeah. yeah. My mom made really bold and and ballsy things in her it, it, work, not things. Um, but she was definitely a disruptor. I think she was a disruptor without. I'm sorry, mom, uh, a sense of business. And so I think I I saw that as a cautionary mm-hmm. tale and said, how can I become a disruptor and be a player like um, that is taken seriously in the industry? Not, not
1: very many people can do that. Like <laughs> artists are not supposed to be business people. That's why there's managers and business managers yeah. and all these other people to kind of, you know, create guardrails around them to allow them to create while you know, kind of providing some stability and, and infrastructure.
0: Yeah, but you have to be like, there's no, even as a director, like if you don't make your day, you know, however, right. tw- a 12 hour day, you're not gonna get hired again, generally speaking. And so you have to, and you're also in a in an administrative position, right? You are the boss of a huge crew of people. Mm-hmm. and so the idea of like the purity of the of the artistic right. experience is kind of bull, bullshit sadly and and if you i think if you can't toggle those two worlds that's where you get into trouble and and it's what i witnessed in my upbringing um and i think uh i've tried my best to to toggle both worlds it does require um it's a world of compromise right yeah it's like yeah compromise is so Loaded a word because <laughs> that, and that's always the the um, the line you're towing because you have to be able to play the game but you also have to be able to trust your gut when something is mm-hmm.
1: um, choose your battles
0: is is a betrayal of the vision or or your integrity as an artist and and that's something I think that is only learned in time mm-hmm. yeah.
1: What's the difference between directing a movie and being a showrunner on a TV show?
0: Um, well, there's a lot more episodes.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: there's so. When I mean, you're more kind of room. like
1: Manning, you, you know, it's sort of to me, it's, it feels like maybe the difference between. I don't know, going out on uh an expedition with, you know, a smaller group of people versus like captaining like an aircraft carrier or something. <laughs> like right, there's a lot of yeah. people. There's so many more moving parts. Yeah. The puzzle is much more complicated.
0: Yeah. Roku didn't um greenlight a second season, but they did green light a a second season of scripts. Uh so i I wrote the entire first season alone, but the second season I ran my first writer's room, mm. and so that was really the conventional experience of being a showrunner um and That was really thrilling and cool um Again, it is both administrative and creative, and it's not dissimilar to directing in that there's a singular vision that a bunch of other visions are there to service mm-hmm. and I think your job as both a showrunner and director is to create an, an environment in which all of those visions are in harmony and conversation, and and that obviously there's going to be a hierarchy, but I think that's like something that I work really hard at to create, um, yeah, a space in which everyone's artistry is showcased, and that and that that is deeply felt because i think that's when people do their best work
1: but it's a different skill set the the challenge of writing and directing your own independent film feels like a journey into the soul and it's about expressing your vision and running a writers room is about managing people and making sure that you're communicating adequately so that Whatever is in your mind is being expressed by a collective group of people, right? Who yeah. are sharing, you know, that sensibility and are able to translate that vision or those ideas um, onto paper and onto film, and and maintain like the tone that you set, right? So yeah, th- it's like that's people skills versus like you know my creative genius skill.
0: Yeah, but I think the thing that that. People don't talk about it, or maybe they do, but those same skills are very much a play as a director, even on an indie film, because um it you know, it's like there are so many personalities and egos to manage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of the work is about creating that um, sort of like symbiosis that that's is a total wild social experiment, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? That oftentimes is disastrous. <laughs>
1: like how are we sharing this vision together or yeah, or what do how you mean?
0: or how do I communicate my vision so that everyone is on board to be servicing it while not feeling hemmed in or that their vision is not um like of equal merit? Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's 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 that line. Because, um, and I think in a writer's room, you have that same thing of when someone, you want to, to create an environment in which every idea comes to the table and is met with intrigue and curiosity and also have the wherewithal to say, and yet <laughs> that yeah. has no place here. And that's really hard, especially mm-hmm. for a person who's you know, a people pleaser or, or codependent mm. in any way. <laughs> right, right, right,
1: right. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, after Band Aid, uh, you stepped up and kind of took a crack at a at a bigger budget movie <laughs> with Craft, right? Craft, yeah. Craft Legacy, Craft Legacy. Legacy, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like kind of resurfacing um, this this cult classic. Yeah. Um, but that was you know much more of a studio kind of movie, yeah. right? Like, did you go into that thinking, well, I'm going to hire an all all woman crew for this as well and meet with resistance with that? Or, you know, what was the process of, you know, cracking that thing open?
0: Um, well, even with that film, like clearly it was based on an existing property. Mm-hmm. Stakes were very high because the fans of that existing property. Yeah, really hardcore intense.
1: goth community. <laughs> yeah. gonna hold um, you to task.
0: Yeah. And 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 I was working within the studio system as an independent filmmaker um, for the first time. Daryl and I had worked with Fox Searchlight um, together, but this was really m- my first foray as I had individuated from our creative partnership. So um, it just comes with such a set a new set of challenges. It still was the writing process for me. I, I had to go in and pitch on it. I had to pitch to. To Jason Blum um, mm-hmm. at Blum House and to the execs at, at Columbia and Sony, and um, my take was still my, my way in is always personal, like even with an existing property. So it was really my story of my my own adolescence, and then, mm-hmm. you know, add a little witchcraft. <laughs> yeah. but um, you know of, of um, me living with my mom, um, just the two of us. And and being in this sort of divinely feminine space, and then her getting a boyfriend and and forcing me to move in with him and his three sons, which was quite a toxic mm. masculine space, at, at really such a crucial juncture in my own um, adolescence and and coming into my own womanhood, and so um, that was my take, and then I you know added a bunch of bells and whistles to it, and um, and yeah, th- you know that. Process, there are so many more cooks in the kitchen and there is so much more compromise. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's, yeah, e- even when there's more money on the line, there's still never enough money, you know, because I was making a big movie that required completely new tools for me as a filmmaker. Um, so, um, it was a, a a very challenging experience, and I think part of me writing all of the first season of Slip after that experience was a protective measure. Taking to, it back, yeah, yeah, I needed to, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and I needed to know that I could, um, and uh, and and yeah, then then to see that I was continuously given that protection by Roku and, and Tea Time, my producers, which is, is Dakota Johnson's company. Like it was really, yeah, a, a very nourishing mm. counterpoint.
1: So how do you know if you're gonna get a second season? Depends on we'll how well it does. We'll find out end of
0: May, yeah. yeah. So
1: like as of the date of this recording, it hasn't quite, it hasn't come out yet. No, but we'll April ne- 21st, we'll right yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: April 21st, uh-huh. all seven episodes drop. So, uh, so hopefully people will, will binge it and, uh, and Roku will,
1: so yeah. they're all going to drop at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's smart.
0: Yeah, I, was, I wrote it to be binged. Yeah,
1: so yeah, and they're they're half hour episodes. Yeah, not, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're easy.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really excited. It's such a wild uh, experience, like sharing something after it's lived inside you for. What so does long. that
1: feel like? Vulnerable. Um, it vulnerable? feels a bit
0: out of body, mm-hmm. like very vulnerable. This this is the most exposed. I mean, yeah, you're very <laughs> exposed. Let's just say you're very exposed and
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: I'm very exposed uh-huh. and um, so yeah, I, you know, I definitely feel scared and I feel excited. And um, there's so much anticipatory sort of adrenaline that mm-hmm. um, yeah, it'll be interesting. There's always a postpartum that happens After it comes out, um, because it is a birth, sure, and um, and the high of that of of the release is is so wild um, and and wildly vulnerable, and Mm. then you sort of have to figure out what's next.
1: (laughs) Yeah, what does the creative process look like for you? You know, I've had Stephen Pressfield in here, and I've had Robert McKee, and all these people who come in and talk about you know, the the kind of art of creation and the kind of brass tacks of what it means to sit down and give birth to an idea. So how do you, like, what are your daily habits or your practices around like, you know, creating these scripts or turning these ideas that you have into reality? You
0: know, <laughs> I don't know where I I have been talking about it and it's sort of an, an embarrassing way to talk about it, but I do. it does feel like there's some sort of cosmic download.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> like I don't know when, I, when people ask me the inception of these ideas for the projects that I write, I really don't, I don't have an inception point. I don't have a memory of when it came to be. It generally happens in a sort of liminal space. It's like upon waking or sleeping or in a shower. It's when my mind is given permission to turn off. Um, I'll get an idea and generally then it will sit, I'll sort of let it incubate for a year or two, usually because I'm working on something else. Um,
1: But when it persists.
0: But when it persists, I know. Yeah, Yeah.
1: you're like, uh, I need to pay attention to that.
0: Yeah, I've never been impulsive. Like I've never gotten an idea and been like, and we're writing. Mm -hmm. I sort of let it, because also, as I said, like so many of those ideas are um, based in, Big questions, so I also want to have some time to figure out what the question is and what the the facets of it are that I want to explore. but um I don't have like a daily practice when i when it's time to write and my body knows it's time to write, it's very clear to me, and then I will uh, write incessantly mm. for until I have an entire script um and i'm a i'm a fast writer but i won't it'll be all day every day i'm not an early riser <laughs> so i'll wake up and and i will generally just go right to my computer which isn't the healthiest thing um and then i'll just write for um you know 8 8 hours or wow. something and mm-hmm. then and i'll keep going until it's done and then generally when it's done i like have to have nothing to do with it for a week, and I'll send it to like a trusted group of friends, and it'll usually take them a couple weeks to read. Mm-hmm. And then in that time, once I get their notes, I'll have at least enough distance to then be able to revisit it and go, "Oh yeah, this needs to change. Mm-hmm. That needs to change." Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's that's generally my my process for writing, and then once. I've got enough notes and feel it's ready. I'll send it to my team and go like, all right, let's strategize, how do we get this made? Which is an impossible thing to do, which is why I've made so many things independently. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: So a burst writer, but in the interim, when you're kind of collating these thoughts or there's ruminations around things that are recurring, do you like, have a notebook and take notes? Do you use like the Notes app on your phone? Like what, when something you're driving and you're in traffic, we live in Los Angeles, and yeah. you're like, oh shit, like, well, I, I need to remember this. Like,
0: I write in my notes app. Yeah, I have uh-huh.
1: so many notes in my notes app.
0: <laughs> I also try to talk about uh-huh. it. Like, if I have an idea, I'll try to, because that kind of, um, I think it, it sort of um, cements it. In a way, mm-hmm. if I can say, like I had this idea for something today to a friend or a partner or my parents, um, sounding boards are really helpful. Well, they can stress
1: test it, yeah, and then also it cements it in your awareness. Yeah, makes it more real. Yeah, yeah.
0: totally. Um, I have a, a new movie that I, has been percolating for many years. Uh, I've, I've been doing some of that stress testing it um, and just talking it through lately, and um, yeah. I find the creative process so fascinating in that way because it's so different mm. for every person.
1: And how do you know whether one of these ideas is a TV show like Slip or a movie? Is it just how much runway is there to this story and what's the best medium? Because we're in this weird time where we've blurred the lines. I mean, yeah. I mean what is television? I mean, is is tele- <laughs> It's not. It's not even really a thing. It's like it's <laughs> storytelling. Like, what's the best? you know, medium to yeah. tell the best version of this story and then kind of like, you know, fitting that to the right distribution platform for that.
0: Yeah, Slip was designed to be a TV show and I guess I knew that when, but well, I There's think,
1: an episodic nature to it. Yeah, to it, yeah.
0: and um, I think I also know what medium I'm looking to work in. So mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to create my own show and I think then it was like, "Okay, what is that show?" And what narrative lends itself to to something episodic um, And yeah, I think next next up is a movie. I also mentioned interested in writing a book, <laughs> mm. and that's been something that I've always yeah. wanted to do. so yeah, like different different mediums excite me, especially ones that I'm less familiar with
1: So is it? it's not just the story. It's like, okay, I've done this, but I haven't done this thing over here yet, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have that?
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know, do I have that? I don't know, I've been like, I've been doing this thing for a long time. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm trying to stretch in a few other areas. I'm, you know, I'm trying to get another book together. Yeah, but but when
0: you write, like, is it, are you like, okay, I wanna, Push myself in this. Well,
1: certainly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I look back on stuff as any creative person does on things they've done in the past, and you're like, "Really, dude?" (laughs) You know. So, yeah, Yeah. trying to grow and and you know, kind of meet the moment in a new and 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 better way for sure, right?
0: Yeah, I think that it's the only way is to figure out, yeah, how to grow as an artist is to is to do things that you don't know how to do. (laughs) Right.
1: And to not be uh, so afraid of the thing that scares you, that it paralyzes you from exploring it. Yeah. And I think that gets harder with success because it's easier to keep doing the thing. Like you could just be, like you're crushing as an actor right now, you could just be doing, you know, like getting cast in whatever.
0: Oh God, it's so hard. I it mean, doesn't
1: look that, that way from the outside. <laughs> it looks like you're getting cast in you're showing up in everything. Oh, thanks. Right now. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean it's a it's a nice moment because I I was able to act in um brilliant directors films mm-hmm. and and only do that and then create my own stuff and that's such a nice thing to be able to do. But but I mean the amount of films I'm not acting in, do you know what I mean, versus mm-hmm. the ones that I get, it's the ratio is, is impossible. And so I it's so nice to to be able to create my own work um, rather than sit and wait for yeah. someone else to give me the opportunity,
1: right, because you can exert some agency, right, as opposed to being reactive to whatever yeah. comes to you,
0: yeah, and to write the roles I want to play. And you know, unfortunately, like in this industry, the lists are very small again the, the, the intersection of art and commerce, like the lists are very small of what actors mm-hmm. can get something financed. I am not on those lists, <laughs> at least not yet, you know? And so like it's an uphill battle to to get cast. Um especially now that like Instagram influencers are of value, you know, like right. the 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 pool the casting pool is like even more big and daunting. Um so yeah, for me to be able to write the characters that I'm dying to play is like a total. Uh, so
1: life how safer. does it work? Like, do you your agent calls you and says, "So and so wants to meet with you," or will you audition for this part, or or this director is thinking of you for this, or you know, what is the what is that experience like?
0: I'm still auditioning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she says resentfully. Um, <laughs> I do have a, a body of work that, that could be called upon <laughs> if uh-huh. one wanted to, but I am still auditioning. Um, so like with Ari Aster's movie, Bo's Afraid that's, right. that's coming out, um, or that's out now. Um, I just auditioned, uh, I put myself on tape. Um,
1: did you, so did you go after it? No. Were you like, I want this part or I want this?
0: No, my my team, like, bless mm. them, br- brought it to me and was like, this is our yeah. Aster movie, and yeah. I, I'm, you know, his biggest fan. And um, but I wasn't given the script, so I had to fly completely blind. Um, and when you see the movie, you'll see it's like a really complicated character. So I had no context. Uh and I just had to use my director brain <laughs> to go like, what's happening?
1: So wait, you scene? auditioned without a script? Yeah. How do you even know what you're doing then? You play you, you play like uh uh Joaquin Phoenix's mother the young yes. Joaquin's mother, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I play
0: Joaquin's mother. So it just came flashbacks.
1: out like today, I think, right? Yeah, like, I wish I had that, seen it before I know. talking to you. <laughs> but uh sorry, go ahead.
0: No, it's it's um yeah. Oftentimes, that with with like auteurs, mm-hmm. um, unless you're an offer, you're being given an offer for a role, uh, they'll be really secretive uh, around the script. Um, so I've I've had to do that before, but this one was particularly challenging as a role. And and Ari's dialogue is so brilliant, but it can be quite obtuse, you know. So, um, so yeah, I, I put myself on tape, and it was sort of a like whenever I put myself on tape, I'm like. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we'll see, <laughs> I'm, right. not, I'm not hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I got the call that Ari wanted to meet with me. And when we met, he he offered me the part I thought we were meeting, you know, just as a meeting. Wow. But um, that was just the most thrilling thing in the world. And, and to get to be in his orbit and to get to witness his mastery of his craft. Like I shot that before Slip, it was really inspiring.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and uh, yeah, but and same with with Zach Graft's movie, who I know was on on the pod. Right. Um, I auditioned. I put
1: myself on tape, and got the. That's part, how it so, happened. Yeah. 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 You were great. I yeah. Loved, thanks. I loved that you played you played Florence's sponsor. It was so cool. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> and you were like no bullshit with her. Yeah. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I I told Zach. Um, I've seen the movie a couple times now. Like he did a really good job of of being authentic to what that world and that experience is like yeah. for somebody who isn't part of that world and also Florence who, you know, doesn't come from that subculture. I mean, she's a fucking genius. Yeah. You know, it's she's unbelievable truly, what she's capable yeah. of like the pathos that she's able to you know, bring to the screen just with uh, her face yeah. is unbelievable.
0: Yeah, it's it's an unbelievable performance. Yeah. And it's so beautifully directed and written. Um, yeah, it was really cool to be a part of both of those films. Mm-hmm. Um, because also, you know, you, you create these little families. And, yeah. and now I consider all those people my friends, which yeah, is yeah, so cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, that movie is beautiful. And you know, this isn't like a film podcast. So yeah. there's a lot of people who aren't like, you know, Sina so for those that don't know, like, um, you know, people listen to Zach, but maybe people don't know who Ari Aster is. I mean, this guy, I mean, Hereditary, Midsommar, I think Midsommar is just one of the most brilliant movies I've I've ever seen. And again, Florence Pugh just like crushing in this movie that is unlike anything you've ever seen. It's equal parts beautiful and horrifying and confusing. And and I mean, just the the kind of number of conflicting emotions that you experience watching this movie. So the anticipation of of his newest movie, Bo Is Not Afraid is at a peak, right? And all I've seen is the trailer. Um, what a gift that you're able to participate in this movie. Like I just can't I can't wait to see it. And I really believe that this guy is like, you know, he's among the greats. Uh, and I, he's only I, at the beginning absolutely. of his career. Yeah. You know. Yeah,
0: I think he's I think he's one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. And um to witness what he's done with this film is is mm-hmm. really incredible. It's it's three hours long.
1: <laughs> I know. It's three hours based on the trailer, like it's there's a you know, it's obviously this surrealistic, yeah. you know, kind of experience of him. Like, I guess he's trying to go visit his mom, and like, there's all kinds of craziness ensues. But yeah. just based on that alone, it 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 feels very Charlie Kaufman it kind is. of synecdoche, New York. Totally. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's got like a Coen Brothers Kaufman esque um, vibe for sure, and then and Ari's mastery of like the visual cinematic language is is really something to behold. Like it, I, I highly recommend seeing it in a theater. Um, it is so incredible. And Joaquin's performance is incredible. I mean, the whole cast is amazing, mm. but um, it's, yeah, it's an epic sort of demented dark comedy.
1: <laughs> and what is it like, like when, all right, so Ari Aster, genius, uh, like what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Like how, what is the, the experience of working with an auteur who has that level of command and vision—I
0: mean, it is like a master class. I, I because I was in front of the camera and I, I didn't want to be like annoying and and like shadow him when I was right. Wasn't on but you camera, are a
1: director also, right? I you was. Couldn't, I'm sure you're like paying attention to everything with yeah. some level of hyper vigilance.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's I think one of the main things that I took away from that experience was the intentionality of, um, of his shots, like how much he uh, fits into one frame is really like mm. unbelievable and, um, and inspiring and inspired. Um, his mastery of tone is something that I, Am also always trying to navigate, um, and going between comedy and and deeply felt scenes and horror, and it's mm-hmm. like an amazing absurdity. Absurdity, yeah. But something that I really took away from it was his sense of play, and I think, you know, in sort of it's aligned with what we've been talking about, um, with what I set out to create in the environment on my sets, like. Stakes are so high. We're doing really intense scenes. He does a lot of takes, um, but it never feels like punishing or exacting. It feels fun and Mm. like experimental and that there's so much room because he has a sort of, I mean, he has a a complete command over what he's doing, but there is like a childlike energy that is so um, exciting to be around and, and allows for, I guess just a lot of breathing room in terms of performance as an actor. And, mm. and so that was really inspiring.
1: And what is it like to work with Joaquin? You know, I I mean, only there's have such one... a, like, a, such a, you know, mythos that, know. like, surrounds that guy, you know?
0: I don't, I didn't really get to work with him. I only have one tiny scene in which that, that we shared, but um, I found him to be lovely. Um, him and Ari had an amazing working relationship. And um, we just premiered the film and yeah he was so sweet. And we hadn't really mm-hmm. gotten to know each other came up to me and talked to me about my performance, yeah, and yeah,
1: it was cool. I but, saw some photos or videos of the premiere with you guys, yeah, like out. yeah I mean I'm that, determined to get that guy in the podcast oh
0: man <laughs> he's he's such a brilliant actor mm. um so yeah just to to share any space with mm-hmm. him on screen is really a dream come true.
1: it's pretty exciting, yeah, that movie's gonna come it's gonna make a Make a big splash. I think, I think so. so. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is it about a twenty four? Like they just seem to be magic, like magic their finger is on the pulse yeah. of everything Zeitgeist, mm-hmm. The level of you know um, understanding, like what's going to work, and and kind of being at the cutting edge of not just what's cool, but what's of the highest yeah. caliber in terms of what's going to work in the marketplace, but also. What is most interesting creatively yeah. I think is almost some kind of magic that they're doing right now, right? I know. Even with like beef which just came out which yeah. is just like crushing and I guess they've done some TV in the past but this is really their entree yeah. into television.
0: Yeah. You know, I guess it is their commitment to not being fear-driven, right? Like if you're, if you mm-hmm. were to,
1: <laughs> there's a courage to what they're doing. Yeah, I think. They, they're yeah. trusting
0: filmmakers in the singularity of their vision, whatever medium, you know. And I think that is a testament to mm-hmm. what creates the best work and what speaks to people. Like, I think that's what's so interesting about when you look at like stu- the studio system. There's such an attention to um, creating something for a mass audience. And I think what's misguided about the process a lot of the time is that the idea is that you're supposed to water it down. And when you see some a company like A24, who instead is sharpening the singularity of a vision, and that's what's actually speaking to such mass audiences, like what a great lesson.
1: I think that's so true. Yeah. I think that's so true. I think that's a powerful lesson for anybody who's thinking about you know birthing something creative right like the 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 resonance of it is found in the specificity yes. not in the and the specificity is what creates the universal connection not the other way around and by watering it down and making it seemingly you know kind of relatable to everybody you've lost you know it's so general and and diffuse that it doesn't connect at all, like it's working across yeah. purposes with that goal, and it's like the more specific, detailed um, to somebody's, you know, uh, lived experience or creative expression, um, that's what that's what works, right?
0: Absolutely. It seems
1: weird that that would be radical or kind of like the 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 contrary, the hot take. I uh, know. You know what I mean? But obviously, they're you know, they're, it's working with them.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and um, the proof is really in the pudding. I mean, I also think like for anyone in any creative pursuit, making something with an audience in mind to me is always sort of like the death knell, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like make something that you wanna make, like what is the story you wanna tell? And that's what you, put out into the world because when you start to be i think product oriented over process oriented yeah it can get you into some trouble
1: and yet it is a business and you know there are people sitting around conference room tables trying to figure out if it's going to work in China or it's going to work in this other place and those are the things that dictate budgets
0: yeah i mean when i say it's like figure out what story you want to write. If, if, I was, mm-hmm. if I was talking to like a filmmaker, I would say, figure out what story you want to write, what story you have to write. Um, and then think about a way to make it cheaply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I'm not taking business out of the equation because I think you do have to be pragmatic. If, you, if you're a first time filmmaker and you write some huge epic, it's never gonna get sure. made. And that might be the story you think you need to tell, but what's, if you distilled that story down, what's the, contained version of it and then go, you know, figure out a way to make that because uh every single project I've ever made has had 1000 nos before there's been any yes. Mm.
1: So how do you like weather the rejection cuz you're in a business, you're you, you've become very successful in this business but it's a business of like you said, you know, mostly nos. Yeah. And being able to kind of like hold true to yourself and and what you're doing and not, you know, get overly dissuaded by that.
0: I guess it, com- it comes back to confidence, which is hard, right? Like, cause nose will <laughs> uh, diminish your confidence. I've always had something where I don't believe them. It doesn't mean that I, <laughs> It doesn't mean that I don't take notes, right? Like if, if someone says no, I have to look at what they're saying no to and what I can shift. But um, it requires such tenacity to keep going. And that tenacity is ultimately like an unwavering sense of self or a sense that you have something that deserves mm-hmm. a voice, um, and I don't know. I don't know how 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 to cultivate that necessarily, <laughs> except for to just keep going. I think you just have to keep going, and I think making your own work is really important. Like Daryl and I made work in the face of one thousand no's by just going and doing it ourselves, and you know. That's a real stress test
1: yeah, 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 <laughs> of yeah. the work. Yeah, I feel like um, just in looking at like the projects that you guys did together, you it, it feels like you just pulled this shit out of your ass. Like <laughs> you're like, well, we're gonna go make this movie. And you're, I'm like, what? And then like somehow you're like out in the street, like shooting, like you just, you progress as if, like even if yes. all the pieces aren't together, like you're just in motion moving forward. and you know, when you create that momentum, somehow everything else, you know, those other problems that seem insurmountable start to get resolved.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like manifesting, Mm -hmm, I guess one-on-one is like, I am doing it. You can tell me no, and I can take a note and shift something. You can tell me no and say, well, we have something else like it, which is what you're always hearing Uh or, you know, like, and it's like, well, But do you, and can't there be many things that are in the same world, but have different voices behind them? And um, yeah, I I guess it is about in some ways, pulling
2: it out of your
1: ass. (laughs) (laughs) What's the like worst piece of advice that you've gotten from some kind of like studio person or I'm sure you've heard some bangers. Mm,
0: Yeah, oh God.
1: We're not naming names. I know,
0: I'm trying to think of like like worst piece of advice. Sadly, like it's almost more diminishing than bad advice. It's, it's really just-
1: Ad hominem. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it was more when I was young uh, and I've named this name before and uh, <laughs> I'll name him again, but I- I went to David Mamet's acting school and um and I was 18 and he came uh and gave a guest class and told me that um my shelf life was short as an actor. And um that's probably the worst wow. <laughs> the worst piece of advice I've oh, ever my. been given. <laughs> if you could call it advice. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like someone just took like a steaming
1: shit uh, on my yeah. And like <laughs> Yeah, oh man. That could not have been fun.
0: No. But you know, then later he he saw a sketch that I had written and he was notoriously cruel and said, Who wrote that? And I said I did, and he said you should write a feature. So
1: you know. Interesting. You should write him a letter now. No. This is
0: my letter to him. Okay. David. Dear David. Zoe is on the scene.
1: Um Uh, Conversely, what about like some of the best advice that you've gotten over the years? Um,
0: Well, I guess the best advice I ever was given uh, was by a producer named Alex Madigan who took me to coffee and said, you should direct. And I didn't know that.
2: Mm.
0: (laughs) And it's like a wildly simple piece of advice. But I think that it does take sometimes, I think it for many people, but especially for women and especially for women in film, like this sense of confidence, even if you don't know, or if you haven't gone to film school, if you don't have any, every answer, you don't know every lens, Mm -hmm. you know, that someone saw that and said, go do it. You got it. Mm -hmm. And that's really all it took.
1: To have that outside, external voice, see something in you that maybe you're not ready to see in yourself. Yeah, yeah,
0: which I think has happened for me every time. I mean, that David Mamet story was that for me mm-hmm. too. I was, I was writing, but I wasn't like, no, I should go write a feature, you know? And um, even when I was in high school and I was acting, I I was in the chorus of a musical. I, I had no confidence as an actor and some like parent in the PTA was like, you're really good. You're the one I'm watching in the background. Mm. And And so I guess, tell people when you think they're talented because it's really meaningful yeah. and it's a really hard world across all industries and those are are really character building moments mm-hmm. in terms of giving someone yeah a sense of value in in the craft that they might be interested in but too afraid to pursue yeah
1: um i like that you know i think that you don't yeah also, you know, as somebody who's older, you don't know the impact that your words have on somebody else and when I reflect back and I remember certain things that certain people said to me, I'm sure they have no memory of, <laughs> you know, like that nice thing that they said and those things really can be meaningful. Yeah, yeah. Um obviously uh um Equity and empowerment are, are are really important subjects to you, in terms of uh, you know trying to you know build on r- on ramps to you know a career in this business that you're in and kind of changing the landscape. We're in the you know we're in the we're still you know kind of in the wake of Harvey Weinstein and you know Me Too and all that kind of stuff. And you've been you know a, a really kind of powerful voice in that conversation. Um, What's your sense of of kind of changes that have been made changes that still need to be made. Like, I feel like the whole kind of streaming situation, everything's sort of up in the air and it makes it rife for reinvention and Mm. new models. Like we just saw what Matt Damon and and Ben Affleck are doing Mm -hmm. with, Artist equity, and you know, basically, they've created this new production company where all the crews are participating on an equity basis in these projects, and that's something that's never been done before, and it's fucking awesome. And so, I think there is real opportunity to kind of rewrite the rules. Mm-hmm. And and you're somebody who I know thinks a lot about this and has taken action on this. So, like, where where's your head at with all of that right now?
0: Um. I guess my head is is like I feel hopeful. I do feel hopeful. I think there are there have been strides mm-hmm. that have been made and I think there's still a really long way to go.
2: Yeah.
0: And um and it requires a huge amount of intentionality um from the people at the top. Um and uh and i guess yeah my hope is that it, it won't just be for optics you know that people see the actual inherent value in diversifying voices in a room and um and and changing you know changing up who's also in charge um but you know it's wild I think how far we still do have to go. Like I say say, say that I have hope and I do, but um, just yesterday I I did an interview with like an esteemed publication and the journalist said, what's it like to fake so many orgasms? You must have done that in your real life a bunch too. And Mm. I thought, God,
1: Let's get to the real important stuff.
0: <laughs> so far to go, man. <laughs> like that's yeah. top of mind for you to ask me. Um, and and I do think in some ways slip is gonna be an interesting test in terms of what you know.
1: The discourse will be around it?
0: Yeah. And what yeah, what the discourse will be around. My exploration of mm. sexuality and female pleasure, and um I hope that it pushes the envelope um in a good way because I do think that um that's a part of it, you know like that in the wake of of me too, which you know we're still <laughs> in, in many ways yeah. but um that I think one of the most threatening things is is women's sexuality. I mean, we look at it with women's reproductive rights. It's like the fact that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, it's just unbelievable the power we hold, you know, and, and how threatening that power is. Um, and I hope that uh, there's some way to... Um, Shift the the perspective. It's the same thing about equity and, and inclusivity. It's like this idea that if we change it, it's going to be a mess, or the people mm-hmm. who have been in power so long have to feel a threat rather than a sense of excitement at um, not even you know a, a change a change of guard, but like what that could open up for. The world at large, and and for the guard mm-hmm. themselves,
1: you know, or just a paradigm shift in perspective from perceiving it as a threat to perceiving it as the greatest opportunity yeah. for growth and you know kind of nourishment and and economic viability.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, you look at trans rights just being. Demolished across the country at the same time as reproductive rights, and the same time as racial inequity, and um, in some ways, you know, the the pushback has allowed for so many more voices to come into the fold. Where, um, you know, all of these incredible trans advocates are 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 being, you know, are using their platform to say we're all in this. Like, you know, and, and parents of trans kids, and all of that is like. Mm-hmm. I feel inspired amidst the the sort of bleak atmosphere that we're in, because I do think we're at we're at a crossroads. Um, it's just going to take some time.
1: Yeah: Yeah, I feel like um, the entrenchment around Hollywood specifically is not under threat is the wrong. Word, but um, is you know being challenged to uh, you know reimagine itself. Yeah, and I feel like that's happening in some respects, and on in other ways. There's a holding on to an old way of doing things, which I guess is natural. This is the way it always is with everything. Yeah, um, but I feel like those changes are inevitable. So I'm optimistic, and I think it's a really interesting time. Yeah, you know, and for yourself as a as a, as somebody who's creating in that space, in this space, um, there's so much more. I mean, the fact that you're like making the show with Roku, like there's so many avenues and opportunities yeah. to do cool things, and they're leaving you alone, and you're yeah. getting to do all this kind of stuff. Like that didn't exist, yeah. you know, that long ago, um, and we're at this point now where it's like. There's so much shit, like I have to go you know I have to talk to other people and go online, and like, what should I be watching like there's yeah. so many so much great, awesome stuff out there, um whereas it used to just be like we're just waiting for that one thing for months you know, know to like nourish us and and now we're in this cornucopia of like just amazing art that yeah. we can you know pursue
0: yeah it's a, it is an exciting time
1: mm-hmm. and yet the business model of it has changed, right? There's no syndication money, you know, like all the back end and all that kind of stuff. So all the economics of it are being upended and everyone's trying to figure out like a new way.
0: Yeah, and network television is freaking out.
1: <laughs> As they should be. I mean, that's, that's fucking some broke ass shit right yeah. there, right? It's amazing it's still holding on in the way that it yeah. is, like get over it already, yeah. you know what I
0: mean? Or push yourself to make you know, bolder
1: mm-hmm. choices. Right, right. And you say that as somebody who's done the sitcom thing. Yeah. Like it's wild that so many people watch that shit still. So many people. I know. And it bought me a house. So God bless all those <laughs> Good people. for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, all right, well, the last thing I wanna kind of pursue with you before, you know, releasing you to your life is is just, you know, in in kind of closing here I always wanna try to leave people with some inspiration around engaging or re-engaging with their own creativity and their own voice in perhaps a way that people feel like they don't have permission to. Like Mm -hmm. you're in this world, like this is your job, right? But for most people, like they're doing other stuff. And I'm of the firm belief that we're all creative beings and we all have a voice and we all have something interesting to say and there's no one else out there. you know. You are your own you know you are a unique being, and i 'm always encouraging people to kind of explore that and find a way to bring expression to your unique lived experience so you know how do you kind of encourage that in individuals or or think about how you do that yourself
0: um, Well, I think an exciting thing about this moment in the world and while social media is uh <laughs> You know, a nightmare hellscape it is also a way for people to see that uh, there are weirdos like them everywhere, you know mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I identify as a weirdo too. when I was growing up i didn't I didn't know you know necessarily how to find the weirdos or how to feel less alone and and what to do with those feelings of alienation. Um, and so i I hope that people are emboldened to tell their stories in whatever way they they want to right like there's so many modes of self-expression but i think what i've learned in all of my therapies (laughs) is that um depression is when rage is turned inwards or when when you know you're collapsing in on yourself because you there's not a mode of expression and so um so I'm a firm believer in figuring out what that mode of expression mm-hmm. is um, because I do think it's, it's what will save your life.
1: Yeah, I think that's wise, You know, rather than pushing it down, finding a way to um, shine a light on it and expose it in a way yeah. and deconstruct it for yourself and share it in a way that creates uh, a sense of Bond with the other people who are feeling that way, because we all feel alone in those weird emotions that we have
0: we all feel alone all the time, yeah and like uh, whenever I'm asked what I want audiences to take away from slip or anything I make, I just say I want them to feel less alone because mm-hmm. it is why I make things yeah it's the most powerful tool mm-hmm. you know, and the most and and such a transformative experience as a viewer for me when I see something and and feel less alone that's like that's mm-hmm. why we that's why we consume art
1: i mean in slip there it, there is this sense that you are very alone in this relationship mm-hmm. you know you're you're in this you know intimate relationship, but there's a severe lack of intimacy yeah. and you're trying to figure out like what am I doing here? you go on this adventure um and whatever ensues ensues but I think there's something universal in that, like the idea that we're in our lives, but we're always thinking about like, would our life be better if we were <laughs> over here as opposed to here? And that's connective tissue that you know I think we can all you know relate to deeply.
0: Yeah, especially at this moment, you know, sort of post-pandemic, mm-hmm. it, it, I think a the sen- sense of aloneness is something. M- deeper than we've ever been willing to really talk about. And, um, and I think talking about it is a great thing. And I think it is one of the most profound experiences I've had in the aftermath of, of quarantines that when you ask people how they are, now they actually tell you. Right, it's <laughs> <know>? true, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, not great. <laughs> <laughs> Life's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that's important.
1: Yeah, it's true. Well, um, oh, cool, man. I think we did it. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you. It's so nice to be back in yeah. this beautiful new space.
1: I love you, Zoe. I love um, you too. I'm, I'm such a fan. And uh, like I said, at the outset, it's been so fun uh, to watch your kind of career um, take off in the way that it has. It's, it's well-deserved and I can't wait to see what you do next. So you've got Slip, Coming By the time this podcast comes out, it will be out on Roku, Uh, Bo Is Not Afraid in movie theaters, wherever Mm -hmm. you live, right, Mm -hmm. worldwide. Yeah, I think so. Um, And then what else, do you have anything else coming out?
0: No, we'll just, uh, if you watch Roku and watch Slip season one, then you'll help me get a season two. All right, there we go. (laughs)
1: Let's all, let's crowdsource uh, season two for Zoe. There's the deal, right? Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, peace. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Salise, Dan Drake, and A.J. Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste.